0: Amen. How are we doing, church? Doing good? look great. If you got your Bibles, I hope you do. Grab them. We're going to go to Judges chapter 6 and 7, and we are going to talk about courage in the face of fear because imagine, (laughs) can you imagine if you were like the couple in that video and God called you to do something that was exponentially bigger than you? I mean, just, just for a second, and here's what I know. A bunch of you are afraid of this. You, like, you're okay with being a Christian enough to get into heaven, but you don't want to be one of those crazy ones that, like, does what God says. You know what I'm saying, because you think he might tell you to do something crazy. Well, guess what? <laughs> you are in the wrong place tonight, all right? It's going to get crazy, because what if, can you imagine, what if God called you to do something so far beyond yourself? Would you get a little nervous? Would you get a little scared? Me too. And I don't have to imagine. I just got to remember. I, I can tell you, you know what the number one fear in America is? public speaking. (laughs) That's it. Number one fear listed public speaking. It's a greater fear than sharks. It's a greater fear. It's a greater fear than death. So that means that the next time you go to a funeral, most people would rather be the guy in the box than the guy talking. That's That's what that means. And I can remember the very first time I was ever called to preach. I wasn't really called. I was told. I was standing in the back of a room, Coach Bully, the guy that led me to the Lord. Um, It was at a youth camp, and he said, Joby Martin, when the singing's over, you're going to preach. And I was like, what? (laughs) No, but Coach, I'm not comfortable uh, speaking in front of people. And he said, comfortable? Boy, do you you say comfortable? Boy, you think Daniel was comfortable in the lion's den? Boy, do you think Paul and Silas were comfortable in prison? Boy, do you think Jesus Christ was comfortable on the cross? (laughs) No. (laughs) And I was like, Coach, what do I talk about? Boy, that's easy. You talk about Jesus, you talk about 30 minutes. And then I just been doing that the rest of my life, all right? I can remember the moment when God called me into ministry. That was not my plan. I had a plan. It was a good plan. It was a clear plan. My father and my dad approved of my plan. I went to college to be a doctor, which, looking back, <laughs> Yeah. In fact, my freshman year of college, I saved all the money I could after the first semester and I bought a pair of Doc Martens because I thought that's going to be me one day. I'm just going to be like, that's it. I'm wearing them all the time. And I got, I, I, this is crazy, I got into med school. How about that? And then God called me into ministry and I had to go tell my father, I'm not going into med school, I'm going to seminary. You know what he said? what's seminary? <laughs> and I said, I'm going to go be a youth pastor. And he said, boy, you don't get up and go to fun. You get up and go to work. Okay. But by, by courage, I mean, I'm talking about I was, I was nervous, afraid of what I was giving up in my mind to go into ministry. The money I was not going to make, the girls that would not go out with me because I was going to be a pastor was afraid and then, and then, I can tell you another one. Just a few years ago, four years ago or so, four and a half, five years ago, I'm sitting in an off-site meeting with Beach United Methodist Church talking about the future of our church. That's where I worked. And I was the youth pastor, and I was looking across the table at my boss, Pastor Jerry Sweat, and he said, after a whole night of prayer, he says, Joby, I believe it's time that Beach plants a new church with you as the lead pastor. And I thought, oh, no, all right. And so that kind of fear, that kind of trepidation, that kind of nervousness, and that kind of dependence on God. Can you imagine, can you imagine if God called you to step out that required the kind of faith where if God didn't come through, then it wasn't happening? Well, if you can get that kind of feeling going on inside of you, then you'll be ready to study Judges chapter 6. We'll pick it up in verse 1. It says this. It says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. You see, this is once again the cycle of what we've called around here crappy Christianity of, of remorse and resolution, remorse and resolution. That they, they cry out for God. God sends them a savior. They do okay for a little while. Then they turn away from God. They become self-reliant, self-dependent. Then they really get self-absorbed. They lie to themselves. They think they're doing okay on their own. There's some self-inflicted wounds. And then once again, they find themselves at the bottom of the barrel and they go over and over and over and over in this cycle throughout the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is primarily the story of God's relentless love for his rebellious children. And so here they go again. Now the Midianites are so bad And so destructive that they don't just oppress, they suppress, they eat all their food, they steal everything that the Israelites had. It's so bad that now they're living like in dens and caves and that kind of thing. And then verse seven, when the people of Israel cried out, (coughs) cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. Now, how do you think the people felt about this? Were they asking for a prophet? No. They were asking for a savior. And instead of a savior, God sent a sermon. This would be like you calling AAA because you need somebody to help you change your tire. And they send you uh, 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 somebody to teach you a class on safe driving. And you're like, that's not exactly what I'm looking for. You see, they're crying out, God, we need help. And God sends a preacher. And here's why. Because I think God knows that until they know that they are the problem, then changes of circumstances are not going to do anything to help them. You see, until they get to the point where they begin to realize the problem is not out there somewhere, that the heart of the problem is that we've got a heart problem and that it's got to start on the inside. Tim Keller, the smartest Christian alive right now, he says it this way. He says, understanding, by the way, can you just pray for me? In October, I have been invited to speak a conference with Tim Keller, okay? If you don't know who that is, God bless your ministry. In our world, he is like the LeBron of preachers, you understand? <laughs> so when I got invited, you wanna talk about getting nervous, I saw his name on the thing, and I literally on my rider said, as long as I don't have to preach after Keller. That's what I said, okay, so <laughs> be praying for me, talking about being nervous, all right? Here's what he said. He says, understanding God's way of holiness is more important than absence of pain. We may want out of a bind, whereas God wants us to see our idolatry. God means to instruct us, not pacify us. And so before God sends this this person to save them, God sends them a sermon. You see, he wants to do some heart work first before he just changes the circumstances. You see, God wants repentance, not just remorse, regret. That's not what he wants. And so, the, here comes the sermon. And the prophet says to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Verse 10, and I say to you, I am the Lord your God. In your Bibles, write identity next to that. I am the Lord your God. Identity. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Right? Activity beside that. You see, the message of the gospel is not if you act a certain way, then you belong to God. It's the exact opposite. It's because our identity is in Christ, identity drives our activity and not the other way around. All throughout the Bible. And then God says, but you have not obeyed my voice. In other words, Israel, the reason that you're in the ditch again is because you keep driving you into the ditch over and over and over. And then the Bible does not even, it doesn't even give us how the Israelites respond to the sermon. That God is going to provide salvation regardless of their response. The next verse, verse 11, it says, now, now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah. And Oprah said, if you'll check under your chairs, no, she didn't say that, that's a different (laughs) Oprah. So the angel of the Lord came to and it sat under the terabit and Oprah, which be- belonged to Joash, the Abizibarite, however you say that, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Now, I don't know when the last time you, you have, have uh, threshed wheat, but this is not how you do it. You see, the way that you would thresh wheat is you'd use these baskets you'd get on a threshing floor, you actually would be outside where the wind was blowing good, and you'd throw wheat up into the air, and then the wind would blow the chaff away, and then the heavy wheat would fall down. But you see, where, where Gideon is doing this is he's down in a hole in a cave in a wine press. Why? Because he is afraid. I mean, I mean, he is hiding away and hoping that he will never be found out. This is where the Lord finds Gideon. Now let me just pry around in your world a little bit. Where are you afraid? Where are you hiding away and hoping that you will never be found out? I mean, here's how I see it. If you ever, when you go to a disciple group and you get to the part where they're going to ask somebody to pray at the end, everybody turns into a Gideon. They'll be like, all right, it's prayer time. It's like, oh, don't make eye contact with the leader. Oh, gosh, they might call on me. Ooh, you check your phone, you look at what time it is, you know. You just already go into the pre-prayer, and your prayer is don't call on me, don't call on me. All right, Gideon, that's where he is. You with me? I can tell by the nervous laughter you are there. And so <clears throat> he is hiding away, afraid. Verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. To which, if you're Gideon, I think Gideon's like, you know, the angel of the Lord shows up, says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And I think he's like, Is somebody in here with me? Are you? <laughs> you know I'm scared, right? You know I'm in here hiding, right? And, and at first, you might think that the angel of the Lord here is kind of poking fun at him, of him, right? Like a little five foot two, hundred thirty five pound guy. Be like, what's up, biggin? I mean, this is not what's going on. See, the reality is this: that God does not see him for how he feels or who he has been, but He speaks life into him and sees him for who he can be once he believes that the Lord is with him. If you believe that, change your whole world. It's why we've been singing good, good father till our heads fall off, okay? I know, are you over it yet? Well, don't get over it because we're gonna keep singing it, okay? It's why, because these truths are, are that he's a good, good father, that's who he is and you're loved by him, that's just who you are. Everything else is details. And if you and I could get our minds around the reality that God does not see you for who you were and what you did, That he sees you for who he is and what he did on your behalf. And it changes everything. When you get the whispers, and we all get the whispers, the way you can identify the little whispers, the little voices in your head, the way you identify them is where do they start and what are they talking about. The enemy will always start with where you are now and what you have done in your past. That's called condemnation. The father will never do that. The Father starts with who he is and what he is calling you to be. That he looks at you right now, listen to this, in your addiction and in your divorce and in your fear and in your insecurity and in your rebellion. And if you'll turn to Christ, he looks at you and he says, oh, mighty man of valor. And you're thinking, who are you talking to? Well, honestly, it ain't about you. It's about the fact that the Lord is with you. You see, A.W. Tozer says this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me read that again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So let me ask you this question. Play along here, okay? I mean, really think here. What do you think the face of God looks like when he looks at you? What what comes to mind when God looks at you What do you think his face looks like? What do you think he thinks about you? Now I think, if you're with me, here's what I think, and I know the verses, listen, I know them, but you know what my first instinct is? My first instinct is that God looks at me with just kind of this low-grade frustration like, really, again, are you being serious? And here's why, because I think the majority of the time that's kind of how I look at my kids, right? The other night, Reagan Capri, baby, it is, it is time for you to go to bed, and she is the sweetest, cutest, most manipulative little human who has ever lived. She's like, okay, Daddy, I love you, Daddy. Just unprovoked, I'm like, oh, God, come over here. A hug and a kiss. Go to sleep right now. Yes, sir, I'll be in there to pray for you in a little while. Okay, she goes in there, shuts the door. About 10 minutes later, I come walking in. She's got the covers up and the pillow up, and she's got YouTube on her little phone, right? And I'm like, really? Really? Or my son, JP, getting ready for baseball. We have baseball like three days a week, it seems like right now. And, uh, and then we're always in a hurry. And so I get home and I'm like, buddy, you, go, you gotta get in your room, you get your baseball uniform, we gotta get going, okay? And he's a catcher, so you got equipment for days, all right? And you know, he's got all this stuff. And I'm like, run in there and get it ready. And then I'm trying to get me ready and get his stuff ready and get it into the truck. And then I go running into his room. He's got his jock strap, one sock, and an Xbox controller. <laughs> And I'm like, are you being serious? And so I think, I th- this is kind of how I feel. I don't know about you. Some of you got your Christian life together. Well, God bless your ministry. I'll see you in heaven, all right? But let me tell you about mine. I feel like I get instruction from the Father on what I'm supposed to do and who I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to believe and how I'm supposed to lead this church, good gracious, and all of that, and I'm pretty sure when he opens my bedroom door, there I am with one sock of jockstrap and my Xbox controller going, what? This ain't... <sighs> and he's like, what? The reality is that's not the gospel. The reality is that is not the gospel. Every time God looks at me, he sees the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. He sees the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. When God looks at me striking out, he actually sees home runs. That's that's how this thing goes. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, if Jesus is the propitiation for our sin, propitiation means a payment that satisfies, that means God cannot be dissatisfied in you because he was perfectly satisfied in what Christ did for us on the cross. So he, he, he is never disgusted, he's never disappointed, he's never let down. That every time the Father sees you, He sees he sees the perfect finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. And you see, a bunch of us grew up this way. A bunch of us grew up trying to perform for our parents so that they would be pleased. I mean, I'm really struggling right now as a parent trying to praise my kids for who they are, not what they do. Because what you celebrate shows what you value. And I don't, and I, I want to celebrate them, not just good grades or good, good plays. I want to celebrate them because even if they made bad grades and, and they made bad plays, I still want them to know that I love you because you're my child, not because you are performing well. I'm trying to gospel my kids that way. And what I find myself doing is falling over to the performance side over and over and over again. And you see, a lot of, see, we are sons of God if we were in Christ. And that's not a chauvinistic statement. The reason the Bible says sons and not sons and daughters is because sons in the first century, when it was written, sons were an heir to what their dad had. And so it was an incredibly egalitarian and liberating thing to women to say, hey, no, 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 legally, you'll be like a son. You have an inheritance to your father's kingdom. And so, you see, sonship is about position. You just are. Being a slave was about performance. You better earn it. And a lot of times we act like slaves and orphans instead of sons and daughters of the most high God. So what do you think about when God looks at you? If you could understand that he is fully pleased in the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ, it changes everything. It's gonna take Gideon a while. It's going to take him a while, but this is where it starts. The Lord is with you, almighty man of valor. Verse 13, and Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. In other words... Uh, Gideon is saying, how in the world could you say that God is with us? Because if God was with us, wouldn't everything be going our way? I mean, a lot of us ask this question now. All right, Lord, I put my faith in you. I thought life was supposed to get better. And it's not. And here's, here's God's answer, verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Did I not send you? In other words, be careful what you pray for. Because you might be the answer to your own prayer. You ever think about that? Dear God, why do you allow so much suffering? And God goes, You know, I was gonna ask you the same question. Because I did put you here to do something about it. So, what are you doing about accomplishing God's will here on this earth? That's what he's saying to, to Gideon. And then verse 15, and he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. You see, when God begins to lay out God's plan for Gideon, Gideon is filled with, with doubt and fear and insecurity they begin to set in. And as I'm studying this this week, this is just my own self-diagnosis. Here's what I know about me. If I am in a, if I am in a place of comfort and I've got things figured out, And I'm just feeling good, just kind of cruising. Then here's what I know about me. In those moments, I am not on mission for Jesus. Because I got it. And I was not created to live like I got it. And I know that the opposite is true. I know that when I am taken to those places where I feel desperate for god desperate for god i'm a little bit nervous i'm a little bit even anxious and i have to cast that upon jesus because he cares for me and i'm a little bit like lord if you don't come through i am in trouble then then i know i'm in step with who god has called me to be how about you i can tell you for me (laughs) about right now in my week is when that tends to come up and Mondays, when I go into that tree stand, and I, I you know, I don't know how many sermons you've written, but sometimes I'm like, Lord, I'm looking through here, I've got to figure out something to say. And God, if you don't come through, God, they're your sheep, they're not my sheep. If it's up to me, I don't know what I can do for, you know, just up here just doing dance moves for an hour. It's not going to work. <laughs> so, so, so this, this part in Gideon's life, I think it is something to be desired, that we would get to those places in our life where we're so obedient to God's call in our life that that it brings us to this place of utter desperation. And that's where Gideon is. Gideon is saying, how in the world can I, how can you use me to redeem all of Israel because I'm the weakest in my own house and my house is the weakest in my own town and my town is the weakest in my whole tribe. And here's God's answer in verse 16. The Lord said, but I'll be with you. I'll be with you. You see, God's answer to fear is never, is never rooted in our power. It's always rooted in his presence, over and over and over. Isn't that what he told Moses? He said, Moses, I want you go to Pharaoh, and say, like, let my people go. And Moses was like, I, 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 I don't talk good, okay? And he goes, don't worry about it, I'll be with you. Remember, that's what he told, that's what he told Joshua. Remember three times in Joshua 1, he says, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. Why does God repeat himself three times? Because he's weak and afraid, he's weak and afraid, he's weak and afraid. The most commanded thing in the Bible is do not be afraid. And the reason for that is not because you are awesome. It says, do not be afraid because I am with you. Remember at the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, right before Jesus says, I want you to go and make disciples all over the world to the ends of the earth. And he says, and I will be with you, with you to the very ends of the age. God's trump card on doubt and fear and insecurity is his presence. The Lord said, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said, if now I have found favor in your eyes, Then show me a sign that that it is you speaking to me. Please do not depart from me here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. And so the next from verses like 19 to 26, what happens here is... Gideon runs to the house, and he puts together essentially like a first fruit free will offering is what the Old Testament would call it, and he brings it back to this messenger of the Lord, and he lays it down before him, and this messenger of the Lord like touches it, and it's on this rock, and it burns up, and he worships this messenger of the Lord. Now, here's what this means. Theologians call this event right here a Christophany, that it is a pre-Christmas appearance of Jesus. This isn't like baby Jesus, eight pounds, six ounces, and swaddling clothes Jesus. This is God the Son showing up. And here's how we know. If you read through the text, maybe after church, you can read through the text, you'll see sometimes he's called an angel. Angel in Hebrew just means messenger. It doesn't necessarily mean like a wings and the whole trumpet and all that stuff. It just means messenger. So sometimes he's called messenger, and sometimes he's called the Lord, and he receives worship from Gideon. And And he says the same thing to Gideon here that he says that he says in Matthew chapter 28 and I will be with you always this is a Christophany and then after this after this little worship service then what happens is this this messenger of the Lord tells Gideon hey listen you need to go into your own home and you need to tear down the idols that are in your own house in your father's house you see because because here's the deal is that, that, um, if you are gonna, if you're gonna lead people to topple the idols in their own world, you better start with you. Cause you cannot, you cannot lead where you are not going. And you see, this whole, this whole following Jesus thing, it, it, it is not, it's more like a tour guide than like TripAdvisor. See, TripAdvisor says, you should go there. And tour guides say, no, 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 you follow me. You see, there's a whole lot of religions that say, no, 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 you should go that way. And then Jesus shows up and says, no, no, you come here and follow me. And as followers of Jesus, we go where he goes, and it starts within us. And so before Gideon can ever knock down the idols that are oppressing all of Israel, he's got to start by knocking out the idols that are in his own family's home. And there are two identifications of idols in our life. And an idol is not, you know, back then it was some kind of statue that they would carve and they would bow down to. Two of the identifiers of idols in our own life, an idol is just any area where we're not trusting God for who he says he is and what he promised to do. It's disobedience and anxiety. Any areas of our life where there is disobedience and anxiety, it is evidence that there is some idolatry in our life. And here's what I mean. Because when we are disobedient to God, what we're saying is, I don't trust you, God. I've got to do this my way. So it could be in dating relationships. You were so afraid you're going to be single for the rest of your life that you're not honoring God with your body because you're trying to hold on to him or her. And what that means is, God, I just don't trust you. I've gotta do this my way. It shows up in financial generosity. You're like, yeah, yeah, God, I believe you for me to get to heaven, but you are not my security, this is my security, so I am not gonna open up my hands, I'm gonna hold on to this for me. It also shows up in anxiety, when you're so worried about your children and you cannot release them to God and actually believe that he loves them more than you do. You see, it's evidence of idolatry in our life. And so what Gideon does, Verse 27, so Gideon took 10 men of his servants and he did as the Lord had told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town who did it by day, he did it by night. Now, here's what I love about this. So he's still got some fear, right? Like he's going to be obedient, but he's still afraid. God says, take the, take the idols out of your dad's house. And he's like, well, I can't do it during the daytime when everybody's watching. I'm just going to sneak in there at night because he sleeps loud, you know, and I'm going to go in there and do it at night. And the Lord does not rebuke him. The Lord does not rebuke him. The God apparently is okay with baby steps of obedience toward the direction that God has called us to. Like, how good and merciful is our God? Because I don't know about you. I'm not patient and I'm not super merciful. But when your kid was a baby, what did you expect out of your kid? You expected your kid to act like a baby. And then when they got up to that crawl phase, you expected them to act like a crawler. And then when they were first beginning to walk, what did you expect of them? Just a step or two. Do you remember when your kid first started walking? Were you not stoked on whatever they did? I mean, what you saw in them was not even reality, was it? Because have you ever been around other parents when their kids are taking their first steps, right? And and you're like, you know, the kids, their heads are enormous, (laughs) enormous. And that's a part of the walking process because one day, it just leans the wrong way, gravity takes over, and it's like, oh, I can just take a step or die, right? And they do a couple, and then they eat it. And the parents, what do the parents do? The parents go, oh my gosh, they're walking. And you're like, that wasn't really a walk. That was kind of, it was a stumble, right? Looked like the bricks at two. That's what that looked like. And so, <clears throat> but as a parent, what do you do? As a parent, you're like, I mean, you're stoked for your child. I think what's going on here in the life of Gideon is a good, good father's like, "Hey, man, just one step at a time, one step at a time, one step at a time." Some of you have experienced. I mean, some of you, you know what the step is? Is that you, this is your second week here in a row? You're walking. I mean, it's great. It really, really is. And some of you, whatever it is, some of you are gonna step into a disciple group or step in, whatever it is, you know, worship. Maybe in worship, you reach a new level of freedom. We're singing a song and you close one eye and did like a one here, right here. If my Baptist friends see me, I am done, right? That's what you're doing. And I think the Lord is just celebrating just a little baby step. And so that's what they do. They go by night because he's afraid, verse 28. And when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down. And the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. Verse 29, and they said to one another, who has done this? And after they searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. I warn you on this one. Man, you let some good friend of yours start digging around in love in your life and jack around with your idols, and we will get defensive. We will get defensive. That's what's going on here. Verse 31, but Joash, who's the dad of Gideon, he said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by mourning. If he is a God, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. In other words, if Baal's so tough, let Baal fight for himself. And guess who never shows up to fight? Baal never shows up to fight. Verse 32, therefore, on that day Gideon was called Jeroboam. That is to say, let Baal contend against him. It literally just means uh, Baal tail whooper. That's what that means, okay? (laughs) Because he broke down his altar. Now, because this happened, word begins to spread throughout his tribe and throughout all all of Israel. And verses 33 to 35 just talk about how people begin to follow after Gideon. They begin to see him as a leader, begin to see God's hand upon him. And all these people kind of start showing up to see him as a leader, verse 36. And then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. And uh, if, you, if you've been around Bible study, you've heard about this before, and it's called, it's the fleece test. And so, late at night, Gideon says, all right, Lord, I just need one more sign. I'm not totally sure. I know what you're calling me to do, but can you just give me a sign? Give me a sign. And so I'm going to lay out this fleece, and when I wake up in the morning, and if you really are calling me to do this, then the fleece will be wet, and the, and the ground will be dry. And he wakes up the next morning, and sure enough, it is, and he gets up, and he rings out the fleece, and then the next night, he's like, all right, all right, God, all right, one more time, one more time. And he knows what he's doing here. He knows God's not into this, because in the text, it says, please don't be angry with me, but you know what? It, it might be easy to make the fleece wet, you know what I mean? And so uh, how about tonight? night let's let the fleece be dry and the ground be wet and then sure enough the next morning he wakes up and it's and it's just like that now i don't know about you but have you ever asked god for a sign when god has clearly called you to do something and you and you begin to test god the problem with that is we typically set up the test for our own benefit do we not I mean, I don't know. As I've talked to like guys in my disciple group, I did not know how common this was, all right? Like on the basketball court, God, if he, if she's gonna say yes, let this go, in. All right, that happens a lot. Or you begin to negotiate with yourself, you pull up to the green pull up to the red line, be like, dear God, if you want me to get a new car, let the light turn green. Oh my god, it's a sign. Or some maybe you drive around crispy cream and be like, it was a sign for the Lord. No, that's just said hot. That's not from the Lord, okay? We tend to navigate these things however we want to. Now, Jesus says in Luke chapter 4, when Satan is tempting him, Satan takes Jesus up to the highest point in Jerusalem and says, if you really are the son of God, then throw yourself off of here. Because the word says that surely he will catch you and take care of you. And then Jesus replies to the enemy this way. In John, I mean, in Luke chapter 4, verse 12, and Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, you see, what Jesus is talking about here is you will not, you cannot paint God into a corner. You, you, you cannot instigate and he has to respond to you. That is not how this thing works. That he is before all things, that he is first and he does not do second. Except did you know there's one place that I can find in the scriptures? There's one place in the scriptures that God actually invites us to test him. There's one area in our lives where he says, come on and test me in this. Now, it just happens to be the area that is the number one competitor for our hearts. Book of Malachi, prophet, in chapter 3, verse 10, he says this. Malachi says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. In other words, God is saying, listen, this is just how it works. I am before all things and I go first. And so when you bring me what is first, when you put me first in your life, then and only then can your life be rightly ordered. And if you don't believe me, try it. That's what... That's what God says. That's what that video was about at the bumper. That's what the Currys are doing in their life, not just financially, that's just one little sliver of it. But, <clears throat> but finances will expose, will expose what's most important in your life. That's what Jesus said, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And so what they are saying is, hey listen, he is before all things in every aspect and arena and area of our life. And you see, so Gideon, Gideon tries to test God. And sure enough, God comes through and gives him the sign that he needs. And then in chapter seven, verse one, it says, then Jeroboam, who's, that's just Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. Verse two, and the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And you got to be thinking, what? Now imagine what Gideon is thinking he's like hey Lord um I was already kind of nervous okay and then you built me up to an army of 32,000 and I was feeling pretty pretty confident and pretty sure and I was ready to lead you know I would say stuff and people would do things I was feeling pretty good about myself and then I stood up there and said if anybody's scared then you can go home and then 22,000 left and I bet Gideon was like can I be one of those Lord's like "No, no no you can't okay Here's what I want you to think about here. That God may be reducing your army to prepare you for the battle that he has for you. That the reduction of army is not necessarily always a bad thing. You see, the reason that God is reducing his army, and here's, here's what a lot of people like to do, man. We like to read things into the text that are not in the text. They're like, yeah, yeah, I'd rather have 10,000 brave men than 32,000 in total, but that is not what the text says. He didn't say the reason we're getting rid of you 22,000 is because you're afraid and these, these are like manly men. That is not what it says. He actually says the reason I'm reducing your army is because I want to make sure I get all the glory and God is saying I don't want you to be confused and actually think that you have anything to do with this. That maybe God is reducing your army to prepare you for battle. You know what that means? That what you perceive as pain and what I perceive as pain may actually be preparation for something greater. That the financial trouble that you're in right now could be the greatest blessing from God that you've ever received because he's stripping away some idols in your life so that you could be prepared, that you could be prepared for what he has for you. That the struggles that you're having in your marriage right now and you thought they were a curse could actually be the Lord chastening you and sharpening you So that forgiveness is not just a theory for you, but it is your life. That the health scare that you have could actually be a part of God's plan so that you would cling to him so that you would know that the greatest prize that there is is Jesus. That we don't follow after Jesus because he makes our life better. We follow after Jesus because he is better than life. You see, A.W. Tozer again, he says it this way. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Chuck Colson, he says, whenever God wants to do something great, he finds a great man and he crushes him. Leave room for the crushing. See, I believe this is what God is doing here. In the life of Gideon, he is stripping away all of his temporary comforts. He's he's stripping away all of his temporary strengths so that that God would be the only thing that he clings to. So I know that in my own life, if I am not desperate for God, if I am not nervous of the outcome, if I am not in places in my life where my prayer life has to be like, God, if you don't come through, I don't know what we're going to do. Those are the times, those are the times that I'm abiding in him and leaning in him. You know when some of my worst moments as a Christian are? When everything's awesome. Because then, then I can fall into that false idolatry that I got this. And the truth of the gospel begins with, you don't got this. And sometimes God's greatest grace upon you are the scariest moments in your life. Why? So that you will run to him. And let's just be honest. In 100 years from today, 100 years from now, how much do your circumstances matter? None. How much does your relationship with God matter? It's the only thing left. It is the only thing left. That it is God's grace upon us that he would strip everything away from us. That we could cling unto him. My prayer, one of my prayers for our church is that he would bless us or break us whatever it takes to draw us unto himself. And so, Verse four, after the 22,000 leave and now the 10,000 are remaining. Verse four, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. You gotta think Gideon's like, do what? The people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set him by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands and let all the others go every man to his home. You know what that means? More evidence that God loves the dogs. That's just what that means. God is stripping them down. This is not just like an underdog story. This is an impossible story. There are 300 soldiers and one fearful, not fearless, and one fearful leader. And, when, and it's against the Midianites. So the strongest army, and you remember earlier, it said they had so many camels, you couldn't count them, all right? There's so many of them. I mean, it's like locusts. It's like... It's like Sand on the seashore, they're just you can just see them for days, and you got 300 men, half of them don't even know how to drink out of the lake. Right? It's impossible, and right when the odds are impossible, that's when God goes, Yep, that's where I do my best work. I'm telling you, you feel like you're in an impossible situation, then guess what? You might be perfectly placed for a move of God in your life, and so. There they are. There's just three. Said to Gideon, arise and go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. Notice how God talks as if everything has already happened, because if God says it, it's done. Yeah, what we see is an impossible situation. God sees as done. Verse ten. But if you are afraid, now they've been they've been hanging out a while, right? Gideon's been following after God, been obedient to God for a while now and God's still giving him some grace here but if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant and you shall hear what they say and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down. I think this is funny. The God says, all right, now if you're afraid, get your servant and go down to the camp. Next verse, they're down at the camp with his servant, all right, he's like, okay, what do I do down here? And so, they go down to the camp, and again, God is leading Gideon just step by step, just speaking life into him, just giving him confidence. He's allowing, him, he's allowing Gideon to begin to see himself as this mighty warrior that God sees, not because he actually is a mighty warrior, but because it's God that is going to give this victory to him. And so the next few verses, I'm going to skip over them for the sake of time. Um, verses 12 to 14, Gideon and his servant, they get down to the camp and they hear two people talking. And the person, one of them says, I had this dream last night, this crazy dream. I I dreamed that our big old army tent was right here. And then out of nowhere comes a a barley loaf, a big piece of bread, and it comes rolling down the hill and it squishes our tent. And then the other guy goes, that must be the sword of Gideon. Now, we kind of miss it in english but but there's a lot of humor here okay cuz how ferocious is a barley loaf <laughs> like that would be like that would be like coming up with a team mascot being the biscuits you know go biscuits and it, and as i was studying this i thought nobody would pick a biscuit as their mascot and then i googled it There is a baseball team, it's a double-A baseball team, it's in the Farm League of Tampa Bay, and they're the Montgomery Biscuits. That's what they are. And they play in the Southern League, to which I thought, well, in Montgomery in the Southern League, Biscuits have probably killed more people than swords. That's true, all right? But what's going on here in Gideon's mind is Gideon is, God is beginning to give Gideon evidence, allowing Gideon to see himself the way God sees him. Did you know that if you could see you the way God sees you, it would change everything about you? Everything. Everything. If you could see yourself as a son or a daughter of the Most High King, as more than a conqueror, as a saint, that's what you are. According to the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we could begin to see ourselves the way God sees us, it would change everything about what we do. Verse 15, and as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped, because that is a response to God for who he is and what he has done. He worships. And then he returned to the camp of Israel, and here's what he said. This is the first time he's, like, super courageous. Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And then I'll kind of skip to the end for the sake of time. He takes his 300 people and he comes up, he comes up with this incredible idea. And if you look in the text, it does not explicitly say that this idea came from God, which means this. God, sometimes God uses our greatest weaknesses to, to save us from our greatest fears. Here's what Midian does. Here's what Gideon does. He takes his people and he divides them up into three groups of a hundred and they surround the Midianite camp. And he tells them, I need each man to take with you a trumpet and a jar and a torch. What's missing? Swords, okay? They don't have weapons. They got, they got a, a, a jar, a torch, and a trumpet, all right? And, and maybe you played in a marching band, but nobody's ever been intimidated by the marching band, okay? They're just, you know, here they come, like, that's just it. And then they surround, they surround the Midianites. And then it says, during the second watch of the night. So this is how this is this worked. There would be three watches during the night. So a third of the people, a third of the Midianites, they had been on guard all night long, and they're exhausted. And then a third of the people are waking up because the first watch is over and the second watch is about to start. And then a third of the people would be fast asleep waiting on their turn for the third watch. And then Gideon says, at the end of the first watch, right before the second watch roll. Watch begins. Then, when I say go, we're going to blast our trumpets, and then we're going to break our jars, and then we're going to hold up our torches. And so, the reason this is important is because back in these days, a trumpet and a torch represented a battalion. It represented a battalion. And so imagine this. You've got a third of the Midianite army, and they're, they're just so tired. They've been up all night. They're about to go to bed. And you've got a third of the Midianite army just getting up out of their tents. And then what do they hear? They hear 300 trumpets blow. Poof. And what they are thinking is there are thousands of Israelites around us. I mean, 300 battalions would be thousands upon thousands upon thousands of soldiers. And then all at once, they hear these jars breaking, which which most historians and theologians will say it would sound something like thousands or tens of thousands of swords coming out of their scabbards and then they would look and they would see all of these torches surrounding them and then they're coming out of their tents thinking they're gonna get attacked and then who's coming home? Well, the first wave of soldiers is coming home and they see them coming back with all the torches and the chaos and God strikes chaos upon them and then they begin to fight amongst each other and they all kill each other. And then it ends this way. It says, they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb which means it went full circle. Do you, remember where, do you remember where Gideon started this whole deal? He was in the wine press hiding away and then he worshiped God on this rock and then because he put his faith and his obedience and his trust in God to do inexplicably more than anything he thought he could do on his own and then it ends with him worshiping God again at a rock and in a wine press. Here's the point, that God does not call the brave but he gives courage to the called. That God does not call the brave or courageous, but He makes brave or He gives courage to those who are called. And you could say that a bunch of different ways. God doesn't call the trained, but He trains the called. God doesn't call the equipped, but He equips the called. And what I want you to dig around in this is the part in the sermon where I want the real preacher of 1122 to really take over. He's the Holy Spirit. And I want you to ask, so so where where do I need to step out in faith and be bold? Where is an area in my life where I'm hiding in the wine press, hoping God won't call on me, but deep down I know, I mean, I know, I know, I know that he is calling me to step out in faith. Maybe it's sharing your faith. Maybe it's time to buy a ring there, hoss, it has been seven years, you know, let's do this right. Maybe you know that you're in the wrong career. You just know, and you know it's time to change, and the only thing holding you back is because you're afraid. Or maybe you're in the wrong major, and you know you're so afraid of what your parents think, or you know, you've know you been in school seven years or whatever, and, and you're just afraid. Or maybe for the first time you go on a mission trip, or maybe, maybe it is financial generosity, and you're afraid. Or maybe, and this is a whole lot of people, you're just comfortable, on the merry-go-round of normality, going round and round and round. And you're thinking, is this it? Is this what my life is gonna be? Just wake up, eat something, drive somewhere, do something, come home, eat something, go to sleep, do it again? And you're just on another lap on the merry-go-round of normality? That is not what Christ called you to do. That is not what, that is not what This life was created for you to live. In that book that Trey mentioned on the video by John Piper, it's called Don't Waste Your Life. I love that book. Don't Waste Your Life. That God has given you this one life to live. What are you going to do with it? What are you gonna do with it? The gospel commands us and compels us in response to who God is and what he has done for us to step out and say, God, my life is a blank check for you. You spend it however you like. I can guarantee you, guarantee you this, you won't be bored if you do. You will not be bored. And in that book, the reason Piper wrote that book is because of some events that happened in his church. There were two missionaries, these two older women that were missionaries, and they died in a, in a van accident. And in the, in the paper in their hometown, it says tragedy in the paper. And at his church, he stands up in front of his church and he goes, Is this a tragedy? These two old, I think one was named like Mildred or something. So, you know, you know, she's old. She's this missionary in somewhere and they were delivering food to some orphans or whatever. And they're going around this mountain and the the brakes and their van goes out. And like in their 80s, they go over the cliff and they go down and the van goes up in smoke and they go straight to heaven. And the local paper says tragedy. Piper stands up in front of his church. In Minnesota, and he says, "Is that a tragedy? Is that a tragedy? These two women have poured themselves out for the sake of the gospel, serving the least of these, that people in the ends of the earth might know Jesus." And he says, "He says now I'll read you a tragedy," and he, and he pulls out a Reader's Digest. So, for some, a Reader's Digest is like a blog, but it will come to your house. Sorry, it's kind of like that. I've told you this before, but it pulls out this Reader's Digest, and he reads about this retired couple. He worked hard. they have been married a bunch of years, and he made the right investments. And so in his early 50s, he retired, and they bought an RV. And when they were being interviewed by Reader's Digest, they said, what are you going to do with all this time and all this, you know, liberty that you have and their plan was this their plan was to go up and down the eastern seaboard and collect seashells seashells and piper says now that's a tragedy that's the american dream tragedy and here's why because every single child of god will one day stand before god almighty And I believe he's going to ask you some version of this question. What did you do with that one life that I gave you? What did you do with that one life that I gave you? What did you do with your gifts and your talents and and the call that I put on your life? And what will you have to show with this one life? You know what those two missionary ladies are going to have? They're going to have a sack of peanut butter and jelly and a burn-up van that needs some break jobs and a whole bunch of people that know Jesus because of their life. And they're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You know what the RV couple, what are they going to do? Here's our shells. Really? So here's what you know. You know you were called for more than that. You were no, you know, you were called to hop off of the merry-go-round of normality and died headlong in this adventure that is following after Jesus Christ. Now, this is where you got to do your part. And what I mean by your part is that you take the next few minutes as we, as we close down this service and you allow the Holy Spirit to speak into your life. And then you know what you do? You pray. And you listen, and then you just do whatever he says. Would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, the truth is, is that every single one of us in here are like Gideon that we are scared, we are afraid. Most of us are hiding away in the wine press and yet through the blood of Jesus, you look at your sons and your daughters and you say, the Lord is with you, oh mighty man, O mighty woman of valor. And God, I thank you that you see in us what we could be and should be not what we have been. God, I thank you that when the enemy says that you're condemned, unfit for use, then Jesus steps in and says, no, I'm gonna make that one my temple. I'm gonna move in, make my residence there. And so Lord, I pray. I pray that you would fill us with courage, with spirit-filled courage, that we would do whatever it is that you have called us to do, regardless of of the outcome that we would not waste our life, God, but that we would live for that moment, that moment in glory, then we hear from the voice of our heavenly Father, well done, good and faithful servant." We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. The reason we end our services the way that we do, our own purpose. In my opinion, this is the most important part you probably don't have four minutes in your week where you just sit intently listening to the voice of God in the very presence of God. And so we respond to the gospel and I pray that you would. And we respond by joining our voices together and singing in unison. We respond by bringing our tithes and our offerings. We give our first and our best because God first loved us by giving us his best. You can do that at the offering boxes or electronically. And then we come and we pray in the hopes that when we get up and walk out of here, we will do whatever he has told us to do. Let us respond.